Welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast, where we will discuss the business of running a dental practice with a panel of experts. Now, your host, Dr. Christopher Hoffpower. Hey guys, welcome to the Dear Doc Podcast. Today, I'm going to continue my mini episode series of dental entrepreneurs. Uh, today, we're going to be interviewing a gentleman named Jeremy Krell, who is both a dentist and an entrepreneur outside of the world of dentistry and inside the world of dentistry. But first, let's go to a word from our sponsor. Before we get into the show and introduce today's guest, I would just like to thank United Medical Credit for being sponsors of this podcast and of the business of dentistry. As a matter of fact, they have a special offer for business of dentistry members, 0% merchant fees for the rest of the year, and 30% discount for life after that. You can get that special deal by either going to DocOffInvestments.com and clicking on the deal section, or by going directly to www.UnitedMedicalCredit.com forward slash TBOD. Thanks again, UMC. Okay, folks, we're back now. Jeremy, how are you doing today, man? Doing well. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be here and, and, and appreciate it. Uh, doing well. How about yourself? Oh, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. It's uh, great to get to speak to you. Uh, we, we chatted a little bit off the air and we found out that we have some, uh, some, some definite similarities in, in our story. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to start you off at dental school. Then we're going to work our way back to what you did before then, which kind of shaped the way that you look at things. And um, then we're going to get to where we are today. Does that sound good? That sounds good. Fantastic. So um, what made you decide to go to dental school? And uh, tell us a little bit about your life and practice once you got out of dental school. And um, then we'll jump back to your early beginnings. Yeah, yeah. So it inspired me to go to dental school. I, ra I was raised in a family full of, of healthcare professionals um, and none, none in dentistry, by the way. Uh, and, and so I had always observed how their practices worked in their different disciplines of medicine and the technology that was there and the, and the systems and the, and the operations and the workflow that they ran. And then, of course, I had my own, you know, personal dental experiences. I would go to the dentist routinely every six months and you know, when I was old enough, the orthodontist and I had braces and, you know, I went through all the routine, um, you know, dental treatments. And even as a kid, it caught me that, you know, the dental practices seemed to be doing a, a ton of business, right? It was very clear that everybody needs a dentist and there's a lot of different types of work that dentists do, but those offices seem to lag behind the medical practices somehow, even to kind of the naked eye of um, you know, an unmedically trained kid. Uh, and Absolutely. so I wondered why, what, what's the delta there? What was the difference? Uh, and so that, that was really kind of the first thing that inspired me to, to really think about the profession. And then of course, you know, I'd have to give credit to you know, not only my, my family members who are medical professionals, but also the, the dental professionals that, that treated me. I always thought I got you know, really fantastic care and, and realize the industry from more than a product industry and, and, a, and a, you know, more than just a brick and mortar industry, but as a service industry, right? I saw it as an industry that's really striving at experience, but just somehow not, not necessarily knowing how to meet that consumer demand the way the consumer wants it, right? So Absolutely. I also kind of saw a delta, a delta there, delta on the technology side and a, and a delta on the, the experience side. And so saw it as this kind of up and coming, exciting space uh, and knew it would have, have its, you know, have its day. And I think that, I think those times are now. Fantastic. Okay. So that brings us to why you got into, into dental school. Uh, you, you get through dental school and uh, what, what did you do whenever you got out? Did you open a practice? Were you an associate? Yeah, I went to, so I went to Tufts for dental school, had an excellent education there in, in, in Boston. Um, a very, you know, med, med tech oriented city, in fact, uh, a, a school that integrated medical knowledge and treatment and care into the, you know, entire dental medical um, training. And then after, uh, right after um, dental school, I had now, you know, after living in, and working and going to undergrad in, in Boston, I lived in Boston for about 10 years. So it was time for a change. Uh, I, I followed my now wife, 
to Chicago. Um, and I became an associate uh, in, in a practice um, with a, uh, I'd say a pretty experienced dentist, uh, also experienced in bite and occlusion, trained by the Dawson Clinic, things that I was interested in, but didn't really know much about, didn't get much training in dental school on. Um, and he also really wanted to upgrade his practice and, and flip his practice. And he knew it, it may not be me, we may, not, we may or may not live in Chicago long-term, but he wanted help changing over the systems. This office had, uh, it, it had wet x-rays, paper charts, a very bare bones website, if you could call it that. Um, you know, and so he wanted to have help changing those things. And so in this role, I got to both learn the clinical care from him, learn new areas of clinical care that I hadn't experienced before in occlusion, and then also work on kind of the business side. Excellent. So are you still there at the practice? Did you purchase the practice? Did you leave? I, yeah, I'm not. I helped him flip the practice. Um, in fact, uh, while I was in Chicago, we lived in Chicago a total of, of five years. Um, I, I also at the same time, uh, or immediately after that practice, I went to another practice. They already had two locations. It was a husband and a wife. The husband was on the business side. The wife, wife's a prosthodontist two kind of adult aesthetic practices, and they wanted to open a third kids practice. Uh, and, and I'm not a pediatric, I'm not a trained pediatric. I was going to say, I'm so right. sorry. <laughs> not, a, not a pediatric <laughs> dentist. Don't, don't mind working with kids. Always practice kind of family dentistry um, and, and enjoyed, you know, the pediatric rotations in dental school, but didn't have professional training, you know, as a pediatric dentist. So I opened, I was attracted to the opportunity to open up this third practice um, to learn a different payer mix, to learn, you know, a different type of, again, clinical treatment. So we did, we opened up this third practice. It did very well. I did kind of my own two plus year, you know, pediatric self-taught residency. I had some good mentors, uh, thankfully, but I was really the only doc in there. Uh, it was just me. Um, and so it was a really neat experience. Um, meanwhile, doing both of these practices, I did my MBA at Chicago Booth uh, while I was, while I was in Chicago. Um, and then after the five years in, in total in Chicago, we moved back to the East Coast, where I currently am. Okay. And so currently, are you in a practice or are you doing the other entrepreneurial things that you, that we're going to talk about? Yeah, currently I'm, I'm now uh, what's, what, what everybody's calling a dry finger dentist. Um, but as soon as I came back to, to this area, we moved to Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, and I did, I partnered with a dentist 10 years before me from my same school, Tufts. Um, we had a practice, um, we've since, there's since total five acquisitions, three total locations, uh, a couple of the locations have been expanded, um, a couple of the other acquisitions were folded into the existing locations, um, and so I'm a, really a silent business partner, kind of use it as my, my innovation lab, if you will, uh, but I am, I am uh, of the last uh, few years now, um, in total of about a decade, being a dentist the last few years have been completely dry finger. I, I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to adopt it as my own. I'm a, I'm a dry finger dentist. I love it. Okay. So um, let's take a trip back in time. You obviously have a very business mindset, um, a very um, organizational, a lot of people would say a corporate mindset, but really when I think corporate, I think organization systems um, process, because that's how you get the greatest productivity and efficiency out of anything is by having those things in place. And so I'm going to say organizational mindset rather than corporate, because it's a trigger word for a lot of dentists out there. So talk to us a little bit about your early formative years that caused you to think differently and to be able to make these, uh, make these progresses and, and changes and different pathways in your career of dentistry that perhaps other people have had access to. Yeah. So it really all started about 18 years ago. Uh, now, uh, my, my, I wanted a different um, set of apparel for our sports team than our summer camp and a couple of other things that I was working on. And we were just told no, 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 by a variety of different, uh, both vendors and organizations that we were a part of, that, you know, that they're open to it, but not going to make it for us. Um, so I called up my best friend, who's a web and graphic designer. I'm not. And uh, we had, we started a web and graphic design business. We spun two companies off of it, one uh, an apparel business and one more of an artistic design business um, and, uh, and sold both of those, had two, had two acquisitions there. And so that whole process, which was really just an un unintended circumstance, right? Um, 
an unintended result of, of the circumstances that we were in uh, was what really sparked it for me. That felt good. I'm not a web and graphic designer. I was on the business side and we were able to really make something that not only benefited us, but benefited other people. Uh, came in at a price point that was attractive, had a model that was efficient and made sense, uh, created uh, designs that became real IP for, for other organizations. Um, that, that was what really started it. Um, from there, uh, I went to start a, or join the founding team of a luxury, what I'll call for lack of a better category, luxury good and commodity service company targeting college students. So what I mean by that is laundry pickup and delivery, room cleaning, appliance rental, PC, backup, a variety of these different kind of convenience services on college campuses and kind of scale that brand and that process nationwide instead of, you know, kind of just the local or regional or, um, you know, inconsistent uh, quality and experience. Um, so ran that as the chief director of sales for four years um, and ultimately the chief operating officer before we sold it four years later, right before the 2008 market crash, which was simply put lucky timing. Beautiful timing. <laughs> just, just lucky timing. You have to, you have to remember it's now that's 2000, like five, you know, four to eight or something like that. Um, so we're scaling up here, like mo mo for the most part without a Facebook. Right, uh, or at least not on Facebook until the very end, um, and and so it was a different. Oh, yeah. You different had MySpace. <laughs> that, oh, MySpace, right? I do forget. We we honestly we didn't do much social. It, it's forgettable. Uh, yeah, we didn't do too too much on a little bit, but too, not too too much on social. So we were really, you know, there were guerrilla tactics, mailers, um, you, you know, all having a physical presence on move-in day. At, at college campuses. I mean, we, we really did it, you know, street on the feet uh, or feet on the street uh, style. So, um, you know, that's, 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 that was the way of the, the business. Um, we sold it and, 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 and we did, uh, we did well there. Um, so, so I'm glad to see the, uh, the result. Uh, and then from there, I start, I really liked working with startups. I realized that I like building new young stuff. I, I'll, I'll tell you, I tell everyone, I am an entrepreneur. I'm not a manager. So if, if, if you haven't read Gerber's book, guys, you need to read it because it is super important. You have to know who you are. Um, I, I'm, before I let you go on, I want to cover a couple of things that you talked about because they were gold, absolute gold for anybody out there who wants to, uh, to be more entrepreneurial, but something's holding them back. The first thing is the ability to make connections. Um, one of the things that every entrepreneur I've ever talked to who's successful has is the ability to talk to a stranger and they store tidbits of information. And it's funny because it's like we have a grid, like I can look in my grid and go, I know a net designer. Do I know a coder? I know a coder. The second rule is the ability to connect the talents of other people and visualize an outcome that neither one of the talents visualized themselves because you can know two people, and I've had this happen. It, it, the first example of it was whenever I was in college, and we were on Unix Sun Systems, right? And um, I had a guy who was a friend of mine. He made these just really, really cool cursor icons. So it wouldn't be an arrow. It'd be like, you know, I don't know, like a car or something. And I had another one who, whenever you would click on something, he'd make the cursor explode. And so I asked the first one, I was like, hey, I want a dragon that whenever I click on something, it breathes out fire. And it burns the icon before launching the program. He's like, oh, yeah, you can't do that. I, I can make you a dragon. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> hold on. So I brought the dragon to the other guy. I said, okay, whenever this clicks, I want it to shoot fire and I want it to burn the icon and then launch the program. So I got my dragon that flew around the screen and both of the guys were like, oh my God, this is so amazing. I didn't know you could do that. And I said, I didn't do it. You guys did it. You just didn't know you could do it. <laughs> so that's the number two thing that you brought up there is the ability to spot talent in others and to visualize the outcome of connecting those two talents together. The third one is the ability to organize and systematize. So guys, three huge takeaways right there. And I'm, I'm sure as you're telling this story, you're making those points. So I'm sure you agree. Those are hugely important to your outcome as an entrepreneur. So you've just sold the business. You made a, a really lucky uh, sell right before the crash. Let's go on from there. Yeah, and completely agree. Those are fundamental building blocks to anything you know entrepreneurial. The other thing I would add, you know, is sometimes you just got to try it, and without 
fear to fail, right? Uh, sometimes you just simply failing is learning. Look, yeah. Dick, if, if there's a thousand ways to do something and I fail it five times, there's now 995 ways to do something. That's one right. of them's right, but I know which five are wrong. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. Always look at it as a learning experience. Um, and so, so when it started a, uh, an incubator, I, I, that was a model. There were not, a in fact, just when I started that web and graphic design business, there were not a million of them like there are today. Right. Similarly, when we started the incubator, there were not a million like there are today. Um, and so we started this incubator model, uh, started it in uh, Boston, moved it to New York, Chicago, San Francisco. And the incubator really did three things, three things that I saw that startups really needed. One was lean startup methodology. Uh, if, if you've read about that or, or know about that, basically recruiting, retaining talent in a lean, mean green machine, right? Having, having a few people that you empower to do really great things, retaining them long-term and building on that, that institutional knowledge. The second thing that we did was uh, we would help them recruit funding. We were not a fund ourselves, but we realized they were all going through a fundraising process at some point or another. And heard the term, you know, the day you close your, your last round is the day you start raising your next round, right? So they're always thinking about fundraising. So we were, we were helping them to kind of match and I always make kind of a fishing analogy there, right? If fundraising, it isn't so, you know, straight and narrow. It's, it's like fishing. You make a lot of unconscious decisions when you're going to go fishing, right? You, it, it's how you, it's what time of day you go. It's uh, where, where, what kind of body of water you go to. Um, it's where in the body of water you're going to go. It's how deep do you drop it? How, what hook do you set? What bait do you put on the hook? There's a whole lot of decisions that you make there, right? Which are all the same thing with fundraising. You got to find the right investor for the thing you're doing. Uh, and then the third thing that we would do is we provided a bunch of services in the interim that would otherwise hold them up. So pro forma financials, web and graphic design, legal, some legal services um, that were otherwise kind of, you know, showstoppers for a lot of the startups. So we were industry agnostic. We did see healthcare, even some dental deals come through. Uh, but, but in general, uh, we, we, we built a kind of general incubator uh, model. Ran that for five years um, and then uh, stepped down to sit on the board because I accepted a leadership role at Oscar Health Insurance. Um, this was, uh, I was first introduced to it by the former founder of the luxury good and commodity service targeting college students. And he tapped me in here. Uh, you know, I began sort of hanging out with folks there and, um, you know, eventually sort of said, well, <laughs> maybe I should work here. Um, and, and, and others, I think, agreed. So I took on this department leadership position um, of strategic provider innovations and development. Um, and we focused on building, we managed the hospital system partners for Oscar. There were six hospitals across three states at that time. Uh, the, the technology integrations that were going on in those hospitals, so direct scheduling into EMR systems like Athena, um, and then a variety of special projects um, with some of the other medical staff there, uh, outbound teledoc services, federal risk adjustments, some other things. Um, so learned an enormous amount about a very complicated healthcare, in, you know, an insurance market. Um, so this was kind of my time in, in health tech, if you will. Um, Oscar did not have a dental product at all. Um, pitched them on it, continued to pitch them on it. Uh, still wasn't able to make the, the case strong enough to come, come ahead of other priorities that were in the pipeline, um, you know, because for, for insurance companies, they need to do things like crush small and large group markets. They need to hit their MLR goals, medical loss ratio, um, and some- uh, and Guys, some that's the thing that keeps you from getting paid. Yeah, exactly. 100%. <laughs> um, so, so there were some pretty big goals uh, in, in an otherwise uh, young company company has some two, 3,000 employees now. Uh, it's IPO'd about 14 months ago. So we did, we did well. Um, and I was, I was in under, under four or 500 um, employees. Uh, so it was pretty, you know, pretty early on. Um, from Oscar, uh, I said, you know, time, I was looking for my kind of angle or foray into the dental entrepreneurship. Um, and I was looking at the dental industry continuously and, you know, trying to figure out where my, where my right angle would be. And ultimately, I saw, you know, it was the D2C direct-to-consumer era. Uh, it was the subscription era. Uh, th this is what was popping up, right? It was Harry's, Dollar Shave Club, Casper, right? The, these, you know, kind of companies were 
were starting to come on the scene. And so I saw this Kickstarter campaign and Instagram ad called Quip. Uh, and I said, that that looks like it, right? It's it's simple, it, it's kind of sexy, it meets consumer demands. This is something that they can use, even though we know they're not doing a great job now. And so I decided to uh, to out I cold outreach, completely cold, had no connection to Quip whatsoever. Uh, got to the top two, three folks, came in for a few meetings, uh, and the rest was history. They took me on as as kind of a dentist behind Quip. Um, we scaled the professional side of the industry for four and a half, uh, the professional side of the business for four and a half, five years. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to tag on a couple of points there. Um, the first thing is, uh, we already mentioned understanding that you are an entrepreneur and not a manager because you like starting things, not necessarily growing them to completion, but that ties into the next one that you mentioned, um, which is understanding your bandwidth. You step down. In, from a leadership position in a company because you understood that your passion had moved. And in order to do well as an entrepreneur, what I have found personally, and I seem to see in other people, is that when you are trying to, um, when you're trying to grow something from nothing, if you don't have a passion about it, and you don't have the ability to really embrace it and give it your all, it's not going to work because it is a brutal fucking process and you lose more than you win, guys. But the thing is, one of the things that you can do to win is something that you mentioned. And that is don't fall in love with your idea of what the consumer needs. Listen to what they want. Now, a lot of dentists don't like Quip. And it's because of what Quip does. Quip told the dentist basically, hey, look, that's not what they want. They want this thing. And so we're just going to go directly to them with it. It's the same thing that SDC is doing. And a lot of dentists get really bent out of shape. And you know, our smile, smile, uh, smile direct club, brother. Yeah. SDC. So the thing is, is that sure. They're not doing what we think and what we believe is correct, but they are addressing the consumer desire. And that's important. If you're going to have a startup, that's going to work. You, you, you can't build a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. Well, you can, it just doesn't work. So that, that would be the next thing I pull out of that. All right. So, um, you're done with Oscar. You guys did an IPO 14 months ago, I believe you said. Um, so where are you now? Yeah. So, and I'll agree on that last point with Quip. That was that was directly my job, right? We onboarded about 75,000 dental professionals. Quip always wanted to take the high road and be as aligned with the industry, never cut the provider out. We had models that would sell into the office that they, you know, so that they could, um, you know, work with the patient on their oral, oral care habits and hygiene. So we always left the door open to the professional world. Um, so yeah, uh, Quip, um, about you know, uh, 12, 15 million subscribed users, sells into 120 companies, 250 million or so raised now, um, partners with large organizations like United Healthcare. Um, so, so Quip is well on its way. Uh, I had started to get approached at Quip by lots of smaller startups. Again, kind of love that, but always attracted to that starting new things space. And, you know, they were, Jeremy, do you invest? Jeremy, do you advise? Jeremy, do you sit on boards? All these questions until uh, I, I eventually gave in and started to say, sure, sure, I'll do that. Sure, I'll do this a little bit. Uh, ultimately ended up uh, starting my own after Quip, starting my own management consulting firm for oral health startups called the Barchester Bay Group. And it's sort of management boutique consulting firm meets uh, family office, if you will. Um, and so I have about 35, 40 ventures under management at the Barchester Bay Group. Uh, and I've invested in about a dozen and a half of them personally. Um, so that was, you know, really kind of the precursor to, to what I'm doing now because most of those companies would, can, and, I, and it wasn't all oral health, I'd say it's about 70, 75% oral health. And, and they would, especially the oral health ones would vocalize in one way or another, it's really hard to raise money in this space. Absolutely. There is not any organization to, to the fundraising side in venture. There are no VC funds that focus on, on oral health. There is no data that, that anybody has on how oral health you know, early stage companies transact. Uh, th there simply was no consolidated resource for that at all. So you have these startups pitching to individual dentists, which, you know, can work, but it takes a lot of time and it's super messy from a cap table right. perspective. 
uh, and you can't really raise big money. They're pitching to corporations who are sort of saying, we'll be ready for you in five to 10 years when you're a mature company, right? Not now. And we'll be pitch, and they'll be pitching to VCs who are not in the dental industry. And the problem is mark to mark, right? They will, they will say, okay, so you're a, you're a fintech company or you're a tech company, right? So you should be performing like this. Right. Why isn't it that you're meeting these sort of understood benchmarks? And they're sort of saying, well, we're dental, right? And, and the v, there's a disconnect there, right? They're right. unable, VCs are sort of, because they lack the data, are unable to sort of say, well, I, I don't know. What, I, I don't well, know and that, that brings a, a huge question in. And it's something that you and I, conversation-wise, we haven't talked about this, but I know you had these same conversations. And that is smart money versus dumb money. And you want as much smart money as possible because they understand the industry and they understand the expectations of growth within the industry, as well as those huge cap outs. Most of these tech investors, they're looking for that 14X and they're looking to hit it in five years. You know, uh, they, 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 they want to put in their uh, small business qualifying stock and uh, run away with $10 million tax free at the end of things. They're, they're not looking at what the industry needs or wants. Again, going back to that previous point, you know, what does the customer want? Um, do you think, being that you're in a, in a unique position to do this, and I find it ironic that I am exactly on the other end of the spectrum, because what I do for small businesses is I actually bring the small businesses to a huge group of independent dentists and get them known that way. But I don't have the ability to do this funding, so we might have to work together at some point. Absolutely. Um, dental Dental crowdsourcing. Um, it, everyone talks about it, but I think that it doesn't work for exactly this reason because the smart money is what you really want in a dental startup. Correct me if I'm wrong. Talk to me about that. Well, do you think it's something that um, might take off? I've had lots of friends approach me and say, hey, let's start a crowdsourcing company for dentistry. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> I don't know that I want to get into that. Yeah, exactly. So you, you do, I do agree that you need a, an, an open model. And I think that's what we sort of built at Revere Partners, which is mm -hmm. the, now the first uh, venture fund, first and only independent venture fund focused on oral health. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because we sit here staring down a likely recession, right? And likely some startups ongoing. <laughs> some startups thrive and some, you know, struggle as they, as they did. And as we've seen with COVID, as we've seen with 2008, as right. we've seen with 9-11, right? Um, and so for a startup that's facing life or death, you know, there is a point and I, and I don't want to lose this, even though we'll only cover it, you know, maybe briefly right here is there is a point where money is green, right? Um, and, and, I, and I don't want to lose that. But uh, in, in, in reality, you, you know, you really want to get smart money, right? You really want to get capital that can help you capital. That's very founder friendly uh, capital that understands your industry and the sub vertical within that industry that you're in capital that can push you forward as an organization in a, in a positive way. Right. Uh, and, and you have to be careful. It's not, you know, simply just aligning backgrounds isn't enough because if you bring on even smart capital, um, you could have folks with very different ideas if they have enough, you know, influence or, or, or even power. Just not, even just not the right skill set. Just because you have five people who want to invest in something, it doesn't mean you need all five of them. There might be a sixth person who can't bring as much money to the table, but they've got the right skills that you need for the company. That's right. And you have to, you have to be able to see through that because it's not all, it's not all green, right? You need to have the Sometimes you'll see it. I, I, I hesitate to use this as an example, but you'll sometimes see examples of this on, you know, kind of dramatized on Shark Tank, right? The TV mm -hmm. show where there will be competing offers by investors where the entrepreneur can't take, you know, multiple offers, uh, even if they combine, you know, two here and two over there, you still have to choose, right? And more often than not, you know, they're choosing the better fit to the business than they are the bigger money or even maybe marginally the better terms. Right. Uh, because it's, it, you know, you can have, and it goes back to this. If you want to get on the QVC, everybody knows it's Lori. Right. Right. It goes back to the age old principle. I can have a smaller slice of a more valuable thing, or I can have a bigger slice of a less valuable thing. Absolutely. Right. And I think as entrepreneurs, we all kind of face that decision point multiple times 
in partnerships and sales channels and fundraising and hiring and manage management and leadership and in all aspects of the business, we kind of face that. Um, and so you have to kind of come, come to terms with that, you know, early on. So, uh, so that's something, you know, we contend with. At Revere, we built a, we, we are a, a venture capital fund, but we built a model that could remain open. Right. We knew that this is a new space. And as we educate more and more of our industry and the professionals in it on this space, that they might want to join our mission. And if we raise just a traditional venture capital fund where you raise for six or 12 or 18 months, you close the fund, we would have to turn away so many people who learn about this and want to be involved in it. Uh, and then that wouldn't be meeting the ethos, you know, with which we started the business. So we purposely uh, joined forces with uh, AngelList and co-created this concept of a rolling fund in dental, right? It acts and works just like a traditional venture fund, but it stays open uh, for, for investors. Uh, and so that was really kind of our, our fix to this and, our, and what we necessitated coming into this, this industry and this model. It provides other, other benefits as well. Uh, we, for example, uh, the, the investors are stay more liquid over time because we work off an automated call schedule. Uh, so we, we call their capital quarterly uh, instead of all up front. Uh, in addition, they get more diversified. We invest in three to five companies a quarter. So in a year, they're in you know, uh, 12 to 20 companies. Um, so that works. Um, and then you know, we've earned uh, through AngelList uh, a number of exemptions with the SEC. We can actually market the fund. We can publicly solicit investors. And that's because of how carefully we make sure each investor is accredited. Um, and, and so that's, that's a huge benefit as well. So there were, there were quite a few benefits that kind of came to generating this, this model that we were after that best fit an evolving and growing uh, venture space in, in dental, not a mature one. Um, you know, as it is in other sectors like tech or fintech or health and not also not as mature as dent, dental's private equity side is, right? The side that invests in practice consolidation and late stage product acquisition. It's very different than what we do. Hi, folks. This is Doc Huffpower, founder of the Business of Dentistry and host of the Dear Doc podcast. Before we go any further, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about one of our fine sponsors, Dentamax. Now, I've been able to land a phenomenal deal for all of our TDOD members and our listeners on the Dynamax Dream Sensor. Before I jump into the offer, if you didn't already know, Dentamax offers high-quality dental sensors. They sent me one of their Dream Sensors to try out my office, and my staff just raved about it. If you're picky about image quality, Dentamax has you covered. When you get your sensor in, a technician will help you by setting it up so that you get clear, concise images all of the time. In fact, they can even set it to mimic a sensor that you had before that you like the image on. All you have to do is share which one it was. It has a tough, durable housing, and it's backed by a three-year manufacturer warranty, which is one of the longest warranties in the industry. I also like the thin design. With the beveled corners, it makes it easy to place in the patient's mouth, and it's pretty comfortable. Now, I know a lot of you may be worried, will this work with my imaging software? You don't have to worry there. Denimax has you covered there as well. Denimax Dream Sensor works with virtually all software. In fact, it's usually plug and play. You never even have to use a Twain driver. I'm excited to share this special with you because David Ornett, Denimax's CEO, was willing to give us a really great deal. All of our members can try the Denimax Dream Sensor for free. That's right. They'll ship it out to you and let you use it for two weeks. In fact, they'll even have their technician dial it in on your systems to make sure it looks as good as possible. Now, all you have to do to get this offer is go to denimax.com forward slash TBOD. But guys, that's not it. Denimax is going to give you $3,000 off of their retail price plus a $200 discount above and beyond that just for being a member of this community. So you can get a size one sensor for just $27.99 and a size two sensor for $37.99. It's a really great deal on a really great sensor, but you don't have much time to wait because this deal ends on July 4th. 
So go ahead and go to dendamax.com forward slash TBOD, check out the deal and celebrate your freedom from high prices. Thanks again, folks. This is Doc Huffpower. Let's get back to the show. So let's talk a little bit in the rest of this program about, let's say I'm a dentist, okay? And I've got an idea. Let's talk about the stages that they need to get to before they could approach someone like you. Um, and, um, and what your recommendations are for dentists out there who do want to become more entrepreneurial. Um, what team do they need to assemble? And, um, or at least for me, I know that was a huge thing is nothing really worked until I assembled the right team to do things, even down to like, just someone to answer my emails and, and forward me the ones that are important and the ones that aren't important to take care of them because it took so much of my day. So let's say I'm a dentist. I have an idea. Let's start there. What are the first stages I should do in my nascent startup that I want to exist, but doesn't yet? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'll answer your question directly, but before I do that, uh, let me just preface it with the statement that we always say, because we know that, you know, we're really the only ones looking at this space from a venture's perspective, especially at the early stage side, the door is always open at Revere, right? We always say to people, it's never too early to talk to us. We're always happy to learn. We're always happy to um, uh, help, uh, you know, whether or not it's the right time for funding, we'll let you know. Uh, but we don't just, you know, kind of, you know, ghost people or, or um, you, you know, turn them down without, you know, letting them know what, uh, what it is we're looking for. So conversations always open and always grows. Um, to start a business or to start an idea, I think where you really start is on validation, right? You, if you've created something, you need to at, you know, some, I'm going to use the term statistical significance, right? Let's just call it at some population level, you need to validate that this is a need and, and the way in which, you know, the value chain is being served matches that uh, that need, right? In other words, that there is a product market fit, right? You need to go talk to your users or talk to your, you know, potential stakeholders or partners. And I always encourage people to think about, it. there are some very well studied processes for this, like innovation um, thinking and, and, and innovation design, but, um, you know, to really kind of iteratively basically design your product or service to that need, right? So you are, you know, developing some, so say it's software, right? You might literally start by, you know, scribbling on paper, a couple of screens, uh, screenshots and the way that you think something will work. And you will take it to your customer, you know, if it's a two-sided marketplace to your supply, to your side, to your demand side, and you will ask them what they think about it, right? And you will go edit it, right? And then you'll go back and you'll do it again and again and again and again, probably a few more times until you feel really comfortable that those sketches you know, represent some real value for a good number of parties who are slightly different from one another on both sides. You know, once you do that, then you maybe say, okay, now I can go to a storyboard. And then you do some more iterative design. Once you have a storyboard, then maybe you get somebody to help you go into a wireframe, right? More iterative design, back to the customer, back to the, the users. Um, once you have your wireframe, then you can start to think about MVP, minimum viable product. Right. Uh, and, and kind of putting some actual time and development resource. So what I want to point out is that there are multiple steps <clears throat> before you get to the MVP. Right? Maybe Absolutely. the MVP takes you three, three, six, nine months. Maybe it takes you hiring a few developers or putting your first kind of real cash on the table to build this thing. You have gone through many stages to get to that point. Uh, of, of validating, right? Talking to a lot of different users. Uh, and then you can actually put that MVP through some form of validation study, right? You kind of treat it like it's a, almost like a clinical study. I say that just because it's a, you know, maybe right. known comparable to the professional space. You actually take it through a number of users. So to make a point here, guys, um, two things about validation. And this comes from my own personal failure as an <laughs> entrepreneur. And so I want to make sure they hear this. The first thing is talk to the customer, not other dentists, unless the dentists are the customer. That's the first thing because dentists have notions and they're not right. That's why they're not entrepreneurs. Um, the second thing is beware during your validation process as you are uh, creating your wireframe, as you're doing your storyboards of how things work, make sure that you keep the end goal in mind because people will come up with 
Um, I like to say some products can be featured to death. Um, one of the first products I was involved in was a, um, a voice acquisition program that would translate to Open Dental, Dentrix, and Eaglesoft. And that project died an untimely death because it was featured to death. Everyone was in love with the idea of doing this, but everyone had just one more feature they wanted to add until the dev team was so lost as to what the actual goal of the product was that we had a thing that did a whole bunch of stuff poorly rather than something that did one thing well. And so that's one thing I would urge you guys to keep in mind. A camel is a horse designed by committee. All right, yeah. my friend, back to you. Uh, absolutely agree. hundred percent. You have to do <clears throat> all the iterative design process is to do one or two things really well, right? You, you cannot be doing, um, you know, building a robust product that's full of features from the beginning. Uh, I have, I have met and worked with and advised a number of startups that find themselves in an, in a position of an overbuilt product. Uh, I have found myself, you know, often working with uh, startups that you know lost their way uh, or, or simply do not understand where the product market fit is or they built you know something that they thought or a couple of them and their other friends thought was the best thing since sliced bread um, but it turns out others didn't think that right so right. You, you can't design in a vacuum you can't design in a laboratory you have to design uh, you know by working with others uh, it's it's imperative and not um, an echo chamber folks that's right. It's, 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 it's imperative. You need people who are going to give you that positive friction and push you, you know, and guide you and give you, you know, real feedback. Uh, as, as I love that positive friction. I'm going to, I'm going to use that positive friction. Yeah. Is, 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 is one of my, one of my favorite ones, right. They will rub up against you. They will challenge you, right. Even in, in ways that you thought were pathways of least resistance, but by the time that you get through it and address that feedback, your thing is better than it was before, right? That's, that's the goal. Not that you're worse off, right? That negative friction than, than you were before. Right. Entropic uh, personality syndrome is what I like to call that. The person exactly. who walks in through the room and they suck everyone's energy out just because that's who they are. You don't want them on your team. Right. That's a hundred percent. So, so you have to, you have to build that and, uh, and get to that, that MVP stage. Once you're there, then you can go into real, you know, validation studies or alpha or beta tests, as they're sometimes called, graduating the number of users, you know, up and up um, and, and upping the ante as you go, right? So not just number of users, but, you know, what, what access to your platform that they have, or do they pay or not, right? Or, it, you know, you start taking, you know, kind of one lever at a time and shifting it so that you can study that one variable and not the other variables that aren't, you know, they're being held constant. So that's, that's critical. When I'm advising dentists on how to run their practice, I tell them that there are levers and dials and that a job that is 80% complete is best left alone because the, less the last 20% is just turning dials to get 20% more effectiveness or 20% more productivity. The first 80% is easiest to achieve and requires less energy than the last 20%. So I, I love that, you know, throwing levers because in, in reality, how many programs do you know, or how many products do you know that um, they, they say a plan never survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, in this case, the enemy is actually the people who are buying your product because you put it out there and within a year, you've got a bunch of changes you're going to have to make but you should never try making those changes initially. Put out an 80% product. Don't put out something you think is 100% because it's, you've, I guarantee you've got some more dials to throw there or dials to turn. That's exactly right. Uh, and, and you ideally want to be adjusting one at a time. You Absolutely. don't want to be adjusting you know, four or five of them <clears throat> simultaneously. You don't know what did what then. And, and not just that, but particularly in the tech space, you run into so many problems with creating a conflict between two different settings that you didn't even realize you were messing with because it's, you know, somewhere deep in the programming and then you've got to go backtrack and figure it out. It's not fun. Yeah, Change one into, thing at a time. <laughs> you get into multivariable calculus pretty quickly, right? Absolutely. Solving, you know, a couple of equations with multiple unknowns is a very tough thing to do. Yes. Right. You know, instead, you know, solve, solve for what you can, uh, you know, make it easier on yourself by looking at one thing at a time. So, so that's, that's really the beginning journey. Um, that, and you know, what, look, what, um, 
in general, what VCs or, you know, even Revere is looking for is we're attracted to growth, right? Uh, and growth comes in a lot of different shapes and forms. It comes in engagement, it comes in users, it comes in dollars. These are just some of the examples, but we're looking, looking at things that are improving drastically, right? Teams that aren't getting caught up or held up, right? Teams that are chasing down a really, you know, groundbreaking problem with their solution that they really know the problem that they're going to solve. These are the things we're attracted to. You, you don't necessarily need to have a, a, a business with some, you know, hard guideline around ARR, annual recurring revenue or MRR, monthly recurring revenue, right? We don't set some sort of arbitrary number or target that you need to hit to, to talk to us. We want to see growth, right? We want to see things improving each month um, you know, based on the, the changes and the tweaks that you're making. And we can, we can tell who the experienced drivers are, right? We can tell people who see those, you know, net, when you're driving a car, right? You are never just looking a foot ahead of your car. You're looking, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet ahead of your car. You're looking at the car in front of you, the car in front of that car. You're looking at the cars to the left and right. And well, some you, of us, some of us are, but I don't know if you've ever driven in Houston. Yeah, I've also, this is New Jersey, so you know, bear in mind, and I've driven in Boston too. So, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, attitude on the road here, but, um, you know, in general, you, you really want to spot that, that driver that's got the good, a good balance of offense and defense, right? They kind of know how to play the field. Uh, and so that's really what we're looking for. I have a question for you, just a direct question. I'd like you to explore however you'd like. One of the things that I talk to companies about, because as I said, I'm on kind of the, a different area of doing something similar to what you guys do. I tell them that the number one thing I worry about with a company is explosive growth. And that's because most companies don't actually have the resources in play before they experience explosive growth. And so what I tell them is that, look, if, if you want me to help you, I can do more to destroy your company than I can to grow it. If you don't have the correct safeties put in a place, you don't have the right number of people to, to actually deliver because failure to deliver even the best product is a huge failure point for a lot of companies, or at least that's what I've seen. So what, well, first of all, do you agree? And second of all, what recommendations would you make for companies? And it's okay to tell me I'm full of shit. I, I, I'm okay with that. No, no, it's a top, on the tech side, it's a top five problem for us. Um, I make an analogy my dad and brother hate their orthopedic surgeons. In our world, we like to, well, it, it kind of applies to their world if you really know, but you like to, here we like to break things and then fix them, right? Uh, you need to reach a point and, and, it, and it's hard, right? Because in a startup, everybody's working 24 7, 365, right? right? Everybody's working at the Thanksgiving table and on Christmas Eve, all of us, right? We're all doing 18 jobs, 20 jobs, 22 jobs at a time. So it's, it feels like it's always breaking, right? But you can kind of, you know, if, if, if you, when you feel it, you know, right? That when there's an actual, not just a micro fracture, but a fracture, right? right. When, when you say, okay, we have hit the point where our company's goal is to provide a better experience using our product in this market. We've been doing that up to this point where now the customer number is growing or the demand from the customer is growing and we're no longer providing as good an experience, right? And we're not going to cut our customer down, right? We're not going to, to you know, take customers off our platform, right? You may be able to slow your growth. And there may be strategic reasons to do that, like a recession, right? But, uh, you know, you're not going to kick people off the platform. And usually speaking, you're not going to reduce their, um, you know, usage of, or access to the platform either. So when you reach that point of our company DNA is to be doing this thing, what, this one thing really well, and now that is getting diluted a little bit because we do not have the bandwidth to do this thing really well for this many people, that's when, or those particular areas that fall under it, that's when you need to, you know, kind of hire, hire staff or build processes in, in conjunction with the growth of, of the customer. You can't let one outlead the other. Explosive growth in both ways can be a real problem, right? If you have, if you let in way too many customers, right? All of a sudden you just, the experience level, the product level do really poorly across all of them. Similarly, if you bulk your team up and hire a ton of people, 
you, you know, which is, you know, unnecessary, right, uh, all at once, then you can really blow up your burn, right, your monthly burn rate, uh, you, you know, and not, not be in sync anymore with, you know, your goals on whatever it might be, profitability, fundraising, whatever else. So they have to be done in sync. I, you know, I, I rarely see a scenario in anything prior to series A stage companies where, and even then sometimes where, you know, we're hiring for 15, 20, 25 roles at a time. Probably not. You're hiring incrementally, right? You're hiring because if you're following this fracture method, you're hiring as things break and then you hire yeah, or you build the, or you build it. And by the way, I don't always mean that a people is the solve to the problem. I think dentistry too often has relied on people being, I agree completely. Automation. I was going to say, I'm a huge automation fan, yeah. huge automation fan. Exactly. Right. So you may be able to do something more, more efficiently. You might be able to build a process there. You might be able to reorganize and don't be afraid to reorganize internally the roles and responsibilities that the team members that you currently have and make sure that the people with the strengths are doing the things that they're strongest at. And, you know, that you as a leader are enabling your people and getting out of the way of them so that they can do their job and that they're not blocked, right? Sometimes you can, you can honestly get, get a quite a far away without, uh, without hiring another person. And so companies that are really following this fracture and fix method, uh, you know, are, are typically incrementally growing, right? They're incrementally growing on the consumer side, you know, whoever their customer is and on the team side with some automation and technology and some people. Right. And then growth in the customer, which it usually comes first. Right. And then, you know, growth on the team or the or the automation side. So it's a sort of incremental growth, not sort of, you know, a blow up uh, all, all, right. all at one time. So one of the biggest struggles I see um, whenever I'm talking to a young company or someone who has an idea that's not completely fleshed out yet even is the language barrier. You know, we talk as dentists a lot about making sure that you speak in plain language to your patients, because if there's no understanding of definitions of words, no communication actually takes place. One of the problems I see is, you know, burn rate, series A, series B. A lot of these things are things that most people who want to start a company have no idea what they even mean. Do you have a suggested place that they can go and they can just read about some of these terms, read about some of these processes? I mean, not everybody's going to take, going to go and get their MBA. So do you have any suggestions for them? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good question. There's a whole nother language here. Uh, and in fact, it's kind of like dentistry, where when you're talking to the patient in two sentences, you could completely confuse that patient, right? Totally lost because it's, it's, it's a whole nother language with a complete imbalance of information right? Same thing when you go to the car mechanic and they tell you all these things are wrong and you're not really sure do they need to be done today or not. Same thing, complete, completely different language. One, as one of my, uh, some of my good colleagues and friends over at a, a, uh, a big corporation in dental, uh, they've implemented this dollar jar. So the first thing that I recommend is you implement the dollar jar rule. And that is if somebody says uh, a term uh, or, you know, especially an abbreviation or an acronym or something like that, that you don't understand without them immediately following it with what it means, right? So if I say, you know, management fee, but I don't follow it with, and that means the percentage that is taken off the front of the investment, right? Or if I say ARR, annual recurring revenue, without actually, you know, saying what it means, dollar in the jar, Right, uh, and so I, I recommend from a cultural perspective, right off the bat, that you implement something like that. You can't assume that the people on your team with different skill sets, that you know, from a, a develop software developer to a product manager to your chief of staff or or, or executive assistant to your marketer, are going to all understand the same terms. They don't, right? Um, and most and so, people are not confrontational enough to say, "Well, hold on, can you explain that?" And I actually, usually whenever I have a conversation like this with someone, I have to stop them and say, okay, go ahead and define that for the audience. But you actually did an exceptionally good job with it, which is why I didn't bring it up until just here at the end, because I, I know we started talking about burn rate and things like that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is a good point to, to stick that in there. No, you absolutely can. And so while I have, you know, some, some favorite websites or reading lists, quite honestly, I find that the best learning 
you know, is from the people who, whom you're interacting with in the course of your business, the people on your team or your mentor or your, and they may not follow the dollar jar rule, but you, you implement the dollar jar rule, right? You tell them, now wait, ARR, what does that mean? Right. You know, you stop them and you sort of, so I think the, the best learning I've seen overall in the entrepreneurial entrepreneurship space is really P to P or person to person, peer to peer. Right. Uh, that that's, that's really where I think you're going to get it from. And don't be afraid to ask the same question more than once. Right. So if I say cap and you say, you know, what does that, wait, what does that mean? And I say cost of acquiring a customer. Right. And your next question back to me should maybe be something like, and how are you calculating cap? Right. And I might tell you how I'm calculating CAC, but the next time somebody else brings up CAC, even on your same team, you might ask them the same thing about what does that mean? Right. CAC, they would explain cost of acquiring a customer and then say, and how are you calculating CAC? Because I guarantee you, I've caught problems where, you know, I asked somebody on one of our finance teams how they're calculating CAC. And I asked somebody on one of our marketing teams how they're calculating CAC. And the two calculations are not the same. <laughs> yep. Right. So you need to, you need to, you know, ask P to P, P to P, peer to peer, yep. uh, you know, what it is and how. It's, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned that. I, I remember one conversation where I said, okay, but what does that mean to you? Right. And so they explained it and it turned out that they had never actually had the term defined for them. They just, everyone around them used it and they picked up through context clues, what they thought it meant. And so then they began using it because, you know, we all like to, um, adopt the, the jargon of whatever thing we're doing, because we don't want to sound stupid, right? And everyone else is using this word. And so I find that that happens a lot is that people pick up from context clues and they, it's um, never quite right. You know, it's the game of telephone when you do that. Exactly. There's exactly. things lost in translation. So a lot of entrepreneurs, right? They're the people, they, they are never afraid to ask for help. You have to ask for guidance and help. You are navigating through some, you know, new, you're either trying to do something that's currently being done better, or you're trying to do something, you know, that's innovative, right? Or you're trying to do something totally new and different that's inventive, right? You're, you're, you're trying to do one of those two things. You definitely are going to need help along the way from some of those stakeholders and experts that you encounter, right? They're the person that, <laughs> this is going to age us all here, right? But before there was you know, Google Maps and all these navigation services in the car, you're just relying on a hard paper, right? Even before MapQuest, right? You're relying on a hard paper map, right? The entrepreneur is somebody who is not afraid to pull over on the side of the road. And regardless of what those people on the side of the road are doing, they're in conversation with someone else, they're sleeping, right? Whatever, they're eating something. And you're saying, excuse me, uh, you know, respectfully, right? Always, but hey, I'm trying to get from here to here. What's the best way to do that? Right. That's that's the entrepreneur versus, you know, there are a lot of friends, personal friends, family members will say, oh, don't don't bother that person. Oh, don't, don't always ask. You know, don't you don't always have to, you know, ask or bother somebody. And, and, right? and the clue is you're usually married to that person that's because right. opposites do attract. That's right. And I'm and I'm sort of saying, no, I need to I want to know the best way to get there. And I want to do it most efficiently. Right. And I and I know that sometimes even Google Maps doesn't know, like if you ask the, the, the locals, even though it's calculating all sorts of things right. with traffic and different routes, when you ask the local people, right, chances are they're going to know, nope, you know what, there's construction going on here. Exactly. About to rip up that road. Well, you, you could right. take that route, but there's a five foot deep pothole on it, you know, <laughs> the city, you won't fix it. And, you know, absolutely. And it's going to be raining. And so you're going to get, you know, stuck in a sinkhole, right? You have to ask the, the, the local people sometimes or, or the, the local resource or the, the subject matter expert for guidance. And, and that's really how you get out of these, you know, these issues. Fantastic. Well, Jeremy, it's truly been a pleasure um, getting to sit here and chat with you. Um, it's, um, it, it's been enlightening to me in a lot of ways, because like I said, you work in a completely polar opposite area than I do it kind of doing a similar thing. Um, I hope that those of you in our audience uh, learn something. And if you are trying to launch a company, get the help that you need. Why don't you guys go ahead and Jeremy's not paying me to say this. We have no financial relationship. Go ahead and reach out to Jeremy, reach out to Revere and see if you can get the advice you need. If nothing else, you know, interrupt him while he's drinking his coffee on the side of the road. Absolutely. Feel free to interrupt me. Anybody interested in the investment side or the startup side, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much for having me. And it's really been a pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. 
anytime. I'm just glad I wasn't the one driving with you because I'm always that jerk who can never refold the damn map correctly to stick it back in the glove box. All right, folks, thank you so much for joining us. This has been the Dear Doc podcast. Again, Dr. Jeremy Cress. I said your last name wrong, didn't I? <laughs> Absolutely, oh. Dr. Jeremy Krell. Krell, Dr. Jeremy Krell. Folks, uh, Jeremy can help you if you have a new company that you want to bring to market, has kind of a business incubator that specializes in dentistry. So Jeremy, how can they get a hold of you, by the way? Yeah, please feel free to reach me by email, jeremy at reverepartnersvc.com. Jeremy at reverepartnersvc.com. Thanks, folks. Now, our final message from our sponsor. Hey, guys, this is Doc Huffpower, founder of the Business of Dentistry and host of the Dear Doc podcast. Today, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about one of our sponsors. 4G Dental Labs has been a sponsor of the Business of Dentistry for over two years now. They're a family-owned business located here in Houston, Texas. They're fast, they're reliable, but best of all, they provide affordable quality. They're just plain, honest, good people. For our TVOD members, for your first 20 crowns, every fifth one will be free. Contact 4G Dental Labs at 833-682-8901. Again, that's 833-682-8901. 8901, or you can mail or even just stop by. Jeff Guidi, the owner, would be glad to see you. Thanks for listening to the Dear Doc Podcast, your source for the business and legal questions associated with your dental practice. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dear Doc Podcast on all major platforms.